Another voyage with the moped outlaws. I, I really wanted an eye patch for today, matey, but I couldn't be finding one anywhere. anywhere. It's not quite Halloween yet. Ah, you saying I'm not a real pirate? No, I'm saying the supply closets are not full of bounty. Well, I think they have them at Walgreens or something like that. Yes, but it's better if you take it off the decaying carcass of an old salt. Be he dead or be he live. (laughs) Ah, you must be quite a man if you take it off him live. Or he be quite the the rat. (laughs) Both may be true, yes, sir. Hey, how much uh, energy did you put into learning pirate language? Oh, it be shown as we go on. You'll see just the energy that I put into it. Damn, I owe my brother five bucks because I put none into it. You'd be amazed what you can accomplish in five minutes before the show. (laughs) Aye, because today be... Talk like a pirate day, it is. Aye, it is. Me mates know that that's how we're going to run the show, and if you find fault with it, then you can meet me on the field of honor. (laughs) The field of honor. Is that what it's referred to as? Do not question Captain Skullfuck. Yeah. That's quite the name, Captain Scott. (laughs) Me thinks it was a good name based on my bald head, and I couldn't think of anything funnier than that. Wasn't skull fucking like a really torrid act, human act? (laughs) Some likes it, some likes it more. That reminds me, there was a rap group out of L.A., I think, called Skull Dudgery. Skull Dudgery. Skull Dudgery. Dudgery, Dudgery. yeah. I think he thinks they are similar. Yes, I'm wondering. Um, And then there's the mental idea. So what do you know about the pirate code? Me seeing a bunch of references today. In the each captain had his own, but they were similar. Would you like to hear of a few? Yeah. Well, then, let's start with John Gow, captain of the Revenge. His articles state that every man shall obey his commander in all respects, as if the ship was his own, and as if he received monthly wages. 
Does that imply he doesn't receive monthly wages? That no man shall give or dispose of the ship's provisions, but everyone will have an equal share. Number three, no man shall open or declare to any person or persons who they are or what designs they are upon, and any person so offending shall be punished with immediate death. Ooh, that's solid. Number four, that no man shall go on shore till the ship is off the ground and in readiness to put to sea. If you don't get the message, that means we clean her and make her shine before we head to shore. Number five, that every man shall keep his watch night and day, and at the hour of eight in the evening, everyone shall retire from gaming and drinking in order to attend his respective station. And number six, Every person who shall offend against any of these articles shall be punished with death or in such other manner as the ship's company shall think proper. Wow, damn. Now, every captain seems to have a bit or more or less, depending on the severity of it. Bartholomew Roberts, I, he had quite the list. <laughs> the articles of Henry Morgan and the Buccaneers. This is a bit more intense. The fund of all payments under the articles is the stock of what is gotten by the expedition, following the same laws other pirates. That is, no prey, no pay. Oh, that's incentive. <laughs> compensation is provided the captain for the use of his ship and the salary of the carpenter or shipwright who mended, careened, and rigged the vessel. The latter usually about 150 pieces of eight. A sum for provisions and victuals as specified, usually 200 pieces of eights. A salary and compensation are be specified for the surgeon, his medicine chest, and usually that is 250 pieces of eight. All right. So and your compensation we, provided right. for maimed or mutilated buccaneers. Thus, they order for the loss of a right arm, 600 pieces of eight, or six slaves. For the toss of a left arm, 500 pieces of eight, or five slaves. For the loss of a right leg, 100 pieces of eight, or five slaves. For a finger, or the hand, the same reward as for an eye. Dang. It goes on quite a bit. It is quite here, yes. Dang. It's kind of wild. So uh, slaves were uh, a part of the pirate scene? Apparently. Arr. Like many a ship, there were different rules for different slaves and different places. Hmm. That's kind of wild that a right arm is worth more than a left arm. It's kind of... Arr. Indeed. Like, that's kind of, you know, telling. They weren't so fond of a lefty. <laughs> well, you used your rapier sword with your right arm for most... Yeah, but that's what I mean for most. So a lefty, they were shit out of luck. Only a loss of a hundred pieces. Yeah, a hundred pieces of eight. That's a few horrors in a night on the town. Yes, well, many of the pirates were fugitive slaves in the Caribbean. And so much like... <laughs> We've turned into the Wikipedia show. <laughs> This is not Wikipedia. No? No. Well, it's Britannica. 
That's almost word for word what Wikipedia is. <laughs> Britannica. That sounds like a good sh- name for a ship. The Britannica. And the I've Wikipedia. Tale, a tale of black pirates and the tale of Black Caesar, a captain of his own ship. Wow. Black Caesar in the golden age of piracy, the 1600s and the 1700s was one of a few places where a black man could attain power and money in the Western Hemisphere. Hmm. It is estimated that up to one-third of the 10,000 pirates during the Golden Age of Piracy were former slaves. While many were mistreated and forced to do their lowest tasks on the ship, some captains established a revolutionary equality among their men, regardless of race. In these ships, black pirates could vote, bear arms, and receive equal share of the booty. Back on the mainland, however, justice for black and white pirates was not equal, as we all know. White pirates hanged, but black pirates were often returned to their owners or otherwise resold into slavery. One of the most famous black pirates was Black Caesar, who raided ships in the Florida Keys for almost a decade before joining Blackbeard aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. His life is shrouded in legend, but was a very large and very cunning man. Many accounts state that he was an African chieftain who evaded captured by slavers. Uh, you got to read this whole Britannica page. <laughs> I find it interesting, and you don't, you Garvey slave. No, I find it troll and trivial. All right, well. I'd rather be a mate on a ship than I'll have a ship mate. Oh, no. Oh, what else is there? Talk like a pirate day. Well, Black Caesar eventually able to hire on more crew and begin attacking his own ships on the open sea. Attacked the prison steps. camp. He was a crazy man. (laughs) Possibly a harem of kidnapped women in the Keys. Mm, Yes, rawr. Well, he was apparently a very large man. wonder what they're implying by that statement. What? Oh, you're hoping for something risque there, I can tell. I'm not hoping, just wondering. I mean, the man's dead, by God, so... And he's still hard as the day he was raised. <laughs> like a piece of gold on a sunken ship. And what's Davy's locker referred to? Is that the Bermuda Triangle? I haven't looked it up in Wikipedia, sir. Sure. <laughs> Me thinks that Davy's locker was the death of the cold sea. Davies what about that? Falling in. Did you check out that song I sent you? Yo ho, yo ho. What is that? Yes, we were. What's it called? Hoist the sail. Hoist the sail. Hoist the colors. There it is. Hoist the colors. Heave ho, thieves and beggars, never shall we die. All right. 
there's a bit of a correlation between the Hells Angels, as we spoke about weeks ago, and the freedom of pirates. Well, that's the, the thing. Like, they run. I was thinking about this. A lot of what I think you and I are drawn to in the pirate code and lifestyle and outlaw lifestyle is an ethic that is real. And the outlaws that I admire, the stories are like this person who's outside of the law because the law is corrupt and their ethic won't allow them to live within those confines. It's a hard justice. Right. The equivalent of a moped outlaw in pirate land is a paddle boat pirate. A parable pirate. What is paddle boat pirate? A paddle boat pirate. A pirate, paddle not a pirate. Paddle boat pirate. There's Arr. a tongue twister in there. A paddle boat pirate with a parrot went to Paris on a petticoat punch. Purloined <laughs> some pineapples from a previous predecessor. That's beautiful. Oh my god. If you're not laughing, you're choking, matey. A true scullery dog, are you, if you don't get the humor in this? What is a scullery dog? A scullery dog is someone who spends their time in the scullery, cleaning and making the dishes clean and plucking the chickens, (laughs) washing the clothes. That's all they do. They just pluck chickens all day long. If they pluck if they're lucky to have them. <laughs> Do they get a hundred pence if they lose an arm? Ah, yes. Everyone's an equal partner on the boat, in my view, matey. All right. Which is why they're so enticing. The life of a pirate was the best possible way. Have you ever been on a um, like 17th century schooner? Does Pirates of the Caribbean count? No. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. Those little, um, what are those things made out of? Animatronics. Now, what are those things made of? Because you don't even end up on a schooner. You're on that little rowboat. What is it made out of? I'm trying to think of the, not balsa wood. What is that? Fiberglass, mate. Fiberglass. Fiberglass. That's what I was starting to think of, yeah. No, matey. I've no. been Hawaiian Chieftain, which is the closest I've been. Where's that? The Hawaiian Chieftain was a sailing ship. She was ported in Sausalito for many years, large-masted, and built just like the 1800s to give us a taste of what it was like to pull the big ropes and lay the sails out into the gate. And did you go out the gate? Hey, matey, I did. All right. Did you guys it find... It and rolled a bit more than the modern vessels are. That's pretty rad. Fortunately, they didn't make us work. Because <laughs> you're a lazy pirate. <laughs> no, they served us wine and cheese, and we stood at the sides and gathered our wits about us as we enjoyed the view and the pitch and roll of the graceful ship as she <laughs> plundered the seas of the Bay Area. That's beautiful. Did you plunder any ports? <laughs> oh, not until I got home. 
<laughs> and then that harbor was laid siege to with face and fury. <laughs> it was dredged to a depth never before dredged. Ah. Oh, dear gosh. We oh, even gosh. backed up the sewer lines a bit. Oh, that's beautiful. What the heck? You backed up? I don't even want to know what that's implying. <laughs> How long ago was that? Long enough that my memories turned into a fanciful tale. <laughs> truth be told, there's no truth in it at all. <sighs> so part of our life was pirate parties. That was a thing. Yeah, bohos on the pirate parties. Yeah. It was legend. Yeah. I mean, I my memory of them is relatively uh, sparse. I have some memories of them, but I think there were about four that I didn't go to and two that I did. <clears throat> were hallucinogenics involved when you went? Uh, one of them, for sure. Yeah, that was always a part of them. I think I went to one. I don't remember. It's all I, I can dream. <laughs> I remember a lot of them existed. But as we well know, I don't remember a lot of the things I'm involved with. Well, one of the nice things about um, the pirate parties was there was a level of, um, there was kind of a code to them. One was they couldn't be in just in a house. Right. They actually had to be by the out. ocean, out in the, the and, and there was a, an overnight that usually went with it, which made it tricky. So getting a campsite on the shore and then being able to really rip it up with a bunch of people was, you know, and in, in the eighties and the nineties wasn't so much in the nineties. I think they were done by the end of the eighties, as far as I remember, but <clears throat> it was still possible to get golden gate national recreation center camping on the shore and get away with, you know, having a major blowout. Well, I recall that, like, they would be hard to get to. Like, there wasn't there one at Pirate's Cove? Yep. Yeah. So you had so, to hike down, really down steep trails. and Right. So there wasn't. They weren't, always, they weren't well publicized. Like, with house parties, it was kind of like, well, the word would get out. But with a pirate party, you really had to be invited, and you had to figure out where it was. And only was pirates a were allowed. Yeah. yeah. Particular memory of mine was being there when I was first dating my, what, who would become my first future wife, Mary. <clears throat> and uh, we were, of course, tripping and we were having a blast. <laughs> but we, we were dating, but there was still this element of anything could happen. You know, you're at that stage and especially at a pirate party because you're told couples don't come. Right. If you're a couple, don't come to a pirate party because all bets are off at the pirate party. Yeah, Anything can happen. Yep. And uh, so we went and we were having a great time. And uh, there was a point at which one of the games was there were these two stumps that were a couple of feet off the ground that were separated by maybe five or six feet and a rope. Yeah, I'd pull the other off the rope. So there, there was a contest between me and Tim Talbot to, and he'd been on the, the stump beating everyone for oh. about a half an hour. And he was quite full of himself in a way that only Timmy could be. Arr. 
quite yeah. the pirate Tim was. Yes. He was a good pirate. Yeah. And he believed in himself quite like a pirate captain should. Yeah. If I'm Captain Skullfuck, then Timmy was Admiral Killer. <laughs> Nonetheless, I used the old technique of, you know, pulling and pulling and then releasing. Mm-hmm. And he he forgot that I was capable of that. And I had the advantage because there's something about being on acid that really tunes you in to your body and to your balance. And, and I, so I had a hyper, I had superpowers as far as being able to feel the way he was pulling. And I was one with the rope. Yeah. Um, I still have the poster from that. And if you go really? to Instagram, there's wow. a picture of, of the poster. It's in a silver frame. Wow. And it just says PP with an arrow and it's a grateful dead skull, mm-hmm. but it's got a sailing ship. And it's one of my prized possessions from that part of my life. You know, I've culled a lot of my old objects uh, and gotten rid of things over the years, but I've always, I've kept that one because hmm. uh, it's a great memory, of course. And um, So did Tim go tumbling? Well, he didn't fall quite on his butt, but he fell off the, uh, he did lose. And that meant I was the next one to to stand my ground, so to speak, with all, all right. comers. All right. Yeah. Um, that must have been nice for Murray, like you know. Well, to see me best a man of his caliber, sure. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that we we were having our way with each other in a hidden park of the pirate party, <laughs> and and it was I remember at one point someone came in where we were. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and at that point, none of, neither one of us cared. You know, there were times in later in life where she, she would have been much more mortified by something like that. But, you know, she was full of drink at that point. And acid. I don't know that she took acid. Oh, okay. At that point, we were, you know, we were still not a full unit, but we were still seeing each other, right? We but the still- debauchery of the pirate code had seeped through her pores into her right. bloodstream. And- yeah. And I remember Ed had built like this giant bonfire and there was ample food. I mean, the Healy's yeah. always really did a great job in food. And truth be told, despite besting Tim and not long after that, getting my, having my way with the wee lass, <laughs> I, there, I was still hungry for more. Like there were a lot of really beautiful women that were at the pirate party and they were, there was something about the pirate parties that it gave them permission to be sultry and yeah. overtly sexual. And that was really hot. Like anytime you're in it, like that's another thing about Halloween. I noticed like women become more openly sexual. Their sexual power comes out more on Halloween, I think. And uh, I really love that when, when women are allowing themselves to really lean into their lust, it's quite the enjoyable situation. You know, what I find very a lot of fun for myself is playing with that edge because part of their comfort of playing in a sensual sexual manner is trust and um, a sense of safety, for lack of a better word. So I could feel how sometimes my energy wants to jump over that edge and like, yeah, and then it all is gone, right? Then it's fucking game over. So to just like, just hold that edge. Well, and I think there are some women who enjoy aggressive 
sex. And what I've learned is there needs to be at least some kind of consent, but it's tricky because if you make it too um, consensual at the beginning, it, it can feel less exciting and dangerous and scary, which is part of the fun. Right. So the few times, and literally I can count them on one hand that I've had this kind of approach being something that was uh, acceptable and, and actually encouraged the consent happened like as much as a day beforehand with the idea that, Hey, let's, I want to, I want to have this option in our relationship and you still have a safe word, right? And I'll stop. I'll honor that safe word, but no, isn't the safe word. Right. What's the, what's the safe word? Help, well, please. <laughs> no, that's part of the thing is stop and no become the fun of being playing in resistance. So you have something like cabbage. Right. Or, um, the na- yeah. And you, just or, that. you never get to a place where that word's needed. Well, and then in the, the, there's that Portlandia show where cacao is the safe word. Right. <laughs> Um, so it was, it's really a blast when you have mutual consent to be in your rapist, to be your fully rapist self. I don't think that's quite the word you want to use, but I think I understand what you're saying. I think there's a thing about there is deep, shadowy, sexual, aggression that right. it, that's why it's called rape cultures because there's this under toe and men can control it well or not, depending on their level of sophistication. And, uh, <clears throat> what I noticed about myself is that I, I was still, you know, in fourth gear in a very aggressive situation. I was still that guy who was like, are you Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna smack that out. Was that too hard? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, well, that's a hard didn't put hard. rough sex on the um, show agenda today, but well, you know, I think part of the whole outlaw thing is that aggression. <laughs> aggression is part of the outlaw thing. Yeah. And um unbridled inhabitants of your full male potential. Or I'd say animalistic, because as we were just talking about, you know, men and women. Men yeah. and also, right, right. So it's a very animal base energy. Yeah. Um <clears throat> in some of the men's work workshops I've done, we've worked with the dark anger and then Beyond that, we work with what we call dark sexual energy because there's a lot in that root chakra that is shamed out of existence and and timidness. And there's a great deal of power there. And it's just like anything um, that's that dark is if you allow it unconsciously to inhabit you, then it causes great harm. But being able to utilize it in a calibrated way can be of service you know, and, and so that's what we ask of men who go off to war. That's what we ask of people like cops is to be able to, to access that part of our old, ancient, historical 
genetic code. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but we're, we're actually asking them to do it in a conscious way where the consciousness shines a light into how they approach it. And I think the term we've used for that is night, right? We have nights and there's this code of honor. Hey, would you say that uh, Harriet Tubman was a pirate, an outlaw? She was definitely, was definitely an outlaw. outlaw because what right. she did was completely against the law. Right, right. I think there, we, to really honor the brilliance of Harriet Tubman's commitment, she has a class. She's in a class all by herself. But that, I think, is who I think is a true outlaw, a true pirate, is someone who is in a class by themselves. That's part of piracy is really as a definition that has to do with boats and, and stealing treasure. And, and I think to call Harriet Tubman a pirate is a misuse of the term pirate. But I think well, what I get, what you're getting at is that this. Like the Robin Hood, the power, powerful seizing of their own potential without apology and innovating along the lines of their own in, thinking their own free thinking and it's going like, well, what do you mean? I can't, here's exactly how I'm going to. And ultimately and for the it. good of all, you know, is right. ultimately the base element. And that's what I was saying earlier. It's like the law has become corrupted. So this person's operating outside of the law because the law is damaging people and this person's freeing them. Well, and during our production meeting, we were talking with art about, this idea that the current pirates, like in Somalia and stuff, evolved because right, the governments right. fell apart. That, right. And there was no way to protect their fishing um, areas from international, you know. Well, they, yeah, right. Like, <clears throat> yes, there was this international agreement that wasn't being respected by other countries. And so that's some, some of how those pirates formed out of militia like. Like, okay, well, if the government can't do it, we've got to go out there for our families and defend our, right. our area. And if they're going to come in and steal all these fish, well, then we're going to go after other parts of the shipping from those countries and just steal what we want from the well, ship. I think that came later. Like, I think first they really were protecting their fishing areas. And then when the Somalian government fell apart, this is what I heard, when it fell apart and it became a tribal country in essence then these chieftains started like just plundering for their own it's interesting because i still haven't seen that tom hanks movie about the modern piracy oh, it's really good I've heard it's really good and it, it's interesting because the heroic dynamic that's set up is about him defending the ship right and and justice of right and so we've got but it doesn't really cover that side of the story, does it? It does. As I recall, oh. at, like towards the end, you you understand the Somalian Why? pirates. Then that's part of the dramatic peak of the story is there is empathy. and um, Still doesn't justify it or make it right, right? But it, it does give us an insight into why human beings will do things when they are forced to, when they're backed into a corner for survival. Yeah. As I recall, it kind of did bring into question the righteousness. Like it, it, and this could be my own romanticizing of outlaw and pirate. No, you wouldn't do that. Not me. (laughs) 
Um, but I recall there, that that was part of the story was you did um, understand what was that? By the way, I just saw Natural Born Killers with Jonah. Have, did you ever see it's that? It's been movie? a while since I've seen it, but yeah, that's a really good movie. It is. And I, it had been like, yeah, it came out in the 90s, like early 90s. And I haven't seen it since then. It was then. controversial. It, it really pushed some buttons. People wanted it not to be shown in theaters and stuff. Yeah, well, it's still powerful. What's interesting is I think it's even more relevant today because it is all about the mass hysteria with dark news and massacres and things and how the media just makes this circus show out of it all and everyone flocks to the show. Um, yeah. 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 It's definitely worth a watch. I'm going to go, I'm going to put that on my mile long list of things to watch that I will forget because I never get past, you know, the quarter mile. The Kardashians. I know you and you and your partner are. I'm dudes. caught up and uh, even the new season I'm totally caught up on. Man, that's beautiful. I'm glad that you're supporting them. They, they need. I don't eyeballs. support them. It doesn't cost me anything. Yeah, it's eyeballs. They create audience and they sell that audience out and mass. Yep, I'm actually a bigger Pete Davidson fan than I am Kardashians fan, especially now. Pete Davidson is doing a social service to all the women of the world that think they can save men. He's like, no, you can't. Proof in the pudding. <laughs> I'm crazy as fuck. Don't try to save me. He has BDE for sure. BDE. What is that? Big dick energy. Well, but he says he doesn't. Well, that's just part of the secret. Uh, it's like you don't you don't admit there's Fight Club. Did you see? <laughs> right. And, you, you, and if you go around saying you have big dick energy, you don't. All right. I like it. Did you see his stand-up he did right after he broke up with, um, what was her name, Ariane Grande? I might have. I don't remember it. It was good. I saw recently that he was on something called The the Induction into the Hall, which was a Netflix special about inducting four great comedians into this new thing they call The Hall, which is essentially the Hall of Fame for comedians. Hmm. And so they inducted um, Richard Pryor, um, Joan Rivers, Rivers, George Carlin, and Robin Williams. Robin Williams, that's right. And that that was fun. I enjoyed that show. And Pete came out and did like the opener. He was the opener to bring on the first people. And um, you know, I think the the older he gets, the the more I like him. He's really gonna. There's like gonna be a moment where he's just hilarious. He, you know, I don't expect him to surpass Dave Chappelle, but he could definitely be on par with him for sure. He's doing a lot of film work. That's yeah. That's a hallmark of a very, of a good. Yeah. It's the, it's the hallmark of a drug free recovery. Is <laughs> that They're working. Yes, that is true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm in seeing this one that he, that he did, um, recently with, um, that guitar slinger, the new rock star guy, uh, who's skinny like him. Um, anyway, his name is escaping me now. I didn't put enough MCT in my coffee today. Uh oh. A new guitar slinger? 
Uh, yeah. He's not there. No. No. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't remember. It's, like the big, it's the hottest stadium tour right now in, in the world. That would be, what's his name? The English kid that's, um, oh, dang it. He was with the boy band and then he went off on his own. No, no, no. This is for like rock. Not biggest no, studio. He started out rapping and that's what's so weird is, is people were like. Oh, I know you're talking about the guy who went up against Eminem um, and he's with that hot actress, Megan. Yep. yep. Megan Fox. Yep. Yeah. What's that guy's name? I know you're talking about. Yeah. Welcome hmm. to the portion of the Moped Outlaws where we have a senior moment and we can't. We're old and in the way. I think today is really just you and I hanging out. Although yeah. you you took the pirate talk far. I was impressed. I still am impressed. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I do it all for the entertainment of our audience. It's good. The audience of zero. Audience. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. Robin said that we should have more guests on and we'll get famous. We need to get famous guests because that's how people are getting famous. They're riding the coattails of famous people. Right. Well, we'll just keep our eyes out. We did it. We went hard to try and get Dave Chappelle on the show. I think we should focus on that target and just keep trying. On Dave Chappelle? Yeah. Become stalkers. <laughs> Not stalkers, just like relentless invitations to Dave Chappelle. To, like, you know, I, I think he had a fine invitation and yeah, he's not all that anymore. <laughs> I see one, one little setback and you're like, ah, this is too hard. He doesn't really want to be on the show. What would we talk to him about anyway? Exactly. Yeah. I don't I would talk to him about, you know, mass murder. I would, you know, we, what whatever it is. Bacon's rebellion. Right. I would ask him, do you know about Bacon's Rebellion? Yeah. Because isn't today you know about- the day that Bacon's Rebellion happened? In yes. 16, 17, 1676, September 19th, yeah. 1676, Bacon's yeah. Rebellion. Which is interesting because Bacon apparently wasn't really, he was a recent arrival to Virginia at that point in time. Really? Yeah. What a fucker. And, Berkeley, the the basically the governor of Virginia at the time had set it up pretty good so that the the raids from the native the indigenous populations in a certain areas the plantations what's really it was about the plantations and the indentured servants and basically what was happening is there was this thing going on where Virginia would offer fifty acres to anyone who wanted to come and grow uh, tobacco or corn to get population because they needed population. And what would happen is they would get grants and then the, to get the passage over, they would have to pay back the plantation owners. And what the plantation owners would do is as soon as your, you and your family showed up, each person would get 50 acres. So let's say a family of four, that'd be 200 acres of land that would be accredited to them under the crown. Cause remember at this point, we're still under the crown. Right. It's rule. And <clears throat> so what they would do is then they would, the, the plantation owners would seize the land and it would take seven years for the family to earn back their status for having paid for the, the property. So when you say they would seize over. the land, like they would just so go the, out. The family would arrive with the deeds from the crown. 
And then the people that paid for their passage, the plantation owners, would seize the deeds and hold them as collateral until they worked off at super low wages what they owed for passage. And then the theory was after that period of time, the family would get their deed back and then they'd have, you know, 200 acres of developed at this point right. land. Right. What happened was that the, um, the plantation owners would, were refusing. Are charging exorbitant amounts for the rental of a housing and food. And no, all no, that. They, would, they were refusing to return the land. Oh, even really? After, yeah. They just flat out say no. Right. And what a pirate move. <laughs> what basically this guy bacon comes over and he sort of he's more like we should be taking more of this indigenous land from them they wh- why are we why do we have a deal with berkeley why do we have this deal with the indians this is crazy there's they're just sitting there and so he's they end up arguing in the streets and they him have and a, the mayor yeah the him and the governor berkeley, and bacon have this big blowout and it comes to blows and then there's a war and they basically burn down the Virginia city um, government buildings and bacon is, is winning, but Berkeley goes across the ocean or not across the ocean, across the river and sets up camp with his armies to try and regroup. And about 10 days later, bacon dies of dysentery. And all of his, the people that were on his side were a bunch of these indentured servants who had rallied to try and and get, you know, more power because Berkeley was basically helping the um, plantation Plantation owners owners keep their land. It was all very problematic in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. Big mess. Big fucking. And and all of those um, indentured servants were, someone that the plantation owners didn't want to deal with anymore. So that increased the African slave trade. They actually didn't want to have indentured servants anymore. They wanted actual slaves because it was way easier to keep it under, to hold the power of that. And so that was sort of the, the unintended consequences of Bacon's rebellion. It was also the birthing of slave police was part of it. Yeah. So that was part of where they were like, oh, well, we need a force of plantation indentured servants who could become the people that keep the slaves in line. Hmm. And so that's kind of where police, one of the ways that policing was born was to as a way to keep slaves in line. And that's not wild. Make so the like, laws of the land so much as just to enforce the wishes of the plantation owners. Yeah. So it seems like a. Uh, uh tool of evil is to empower or promise power to those who are suffering by keeping others in suffering, you know, like, Hey, you're fucked. Your life sucks ass, but we'll make it marginally better. If you just beat the ass of those people over there, right? right. keep those fuckers in seven level hell and we'll move you up to level two. Right. Exactly. Oh God. God bless us, each and every one of us. Thank goodness we're finally figuring this stuff out. I mean, we're almost 60. You're 60. I'm almost 60. And we were taught a whole different world of American history. And and we had to dig for this stuff for years. And if it wasn't for people like Bridge and and various other people who are working on, you know, really telling the history of our country. But here's the thing. Um, Are you familiar with that book, Black Like Me? 
I've heard the title, but I'm no, I'm not. So I read that when I was around 11 and that was a white journalist author went through the process to pigment his skin and become black. And he went through the South and documented his experience. And that book opened up my eyes to the reality of what happens when your skin is of a different color. And since then, and Bridge and and others, like, um, I just forgot her name, uh, September, Dr. September. Anyway, people keep showing up that continue my education of the reality of being a person of color in this United States of fuckery. Yep. And it's difficult. It's so here's the thing. There is a human element to our life. And my mom, God rest her soul, is a great example of the particulars of humanity because on one hand, she was stubborn and bullheaded. She was a fuck nut with finances, not, you know, she was horrible at it. On the other hand, in her last days, these stories came out of the love that she created in life for all people. And like one of my sisters shared with me when she went down to visit our mom right at the end, and this young man, probably around 18, came up and just hugged her, you know, and my sister's like, what's going on? And he goes, you're the daughter of Margie, right? She goes, yeah. And she goes, your mom, I love her so much. She taught me English. She just, and that's just one of many stories that have come forth. So part of my point to all this is I think I myself catch myself wanting to generalize because I want it if you don't, you know, if you forgive the expression, I want it black and white. I want a clear cut boundary of what's good and what's bad. I don't think it exists. Ah, and this is the human condition, right? Where everything's got its muddled colors. Yeah. Yeah. And even piracy, which is completely evil and stealing and murdering and raping. What was it? It was an avenue for escape for some slaves that might find a way, some way of being free and finding yeah. their own bounty. Oh, yeah. problematic it was. Arr. Right. And what the fuck? Like Disney, the Pirates of the Caribbean used to be a great ride until they filled those pirates' hand, the women's hands with trays of food. So now suddenly the pirates are chasing them for food instead of sex. What kind of fucking numb nut shit is that? It's the sanitizing of the dark side. Oh, it's sick. That reminds me of the Kurt Vonnegut story, Welcome to the Monkey House. Have you read that story? Me haven't read it. Oh, you want a short synopsis? Arr. So um, Welcome to the Monkey House is uh, about this guy and he kidnaps this woman and at the time in society, people are taking these pills that deaden the lower chakra. Like you have no sex drive. That whole area is just dead. And this guy, he kidnapped, and he's a total outlaw, and he would kidnap women. And then it took five days for the drug to rinse through their body. So he'd hold them for five days and then fuck them. And he would, in essence, introduce 
sex into their life. And it, there's this, the story centers around this one woman that he's kidnapped. And after they have sex and, you know, he, he would, anyway, he says like, what's really going to happen is like, you're going to look for someone who really loves you and really like, cause what just happened is just not even it. And, but, and it's called welcome to the monkey house. Cause the whole, this drug was derived from testing on monkeys. And, um, and then he leaves her a note that, you know, is something about, you know, how this whole world is opening up for her and this and that. And she knows it's real. Like she has a sense that it's real in the story. Yes. Written by a man. I hear you saying it, but he signs it. Welcome to the monkey house. It's uh, interesting because it's such a white knight story of here's a man who kidnaps a woman for sexual purposes, but then couches that in allowing her to find her own sexual freedom, her own freedom of pleasure. And such a, mixture of problematic ideas with right. the idea of, of sexual liberation for women, which I, I'm sure at the time of the writing, it was allegorical to the way society has kept um, us all, you know, in that sort of shame prison. Right, right. That's an interesting thing, because like, I've heard people speak of Son of the South as a racist film from Disney. And I don't think it's racist at all. One of my favorite books that I loved reading to my children was a collection of the Br'er Rabbit stories. And, and here it is. Like, this is a well-read book, as you can see. Who wrote it? Uh, a professor. He collected them. And his name is... One moment, please. Collected from whom? Julius Lester. If you look up Julius Lester, he's a professor. And uh, and I think he's a professor of, I don't know what he's a professor of, to be honest. Um, Tales of Uncle Remus, The Adventures of Br'er Rabbit. Yeah. What I love in his introduction is he says to the reader, like, these are stories that are meant to be molded and like throw in your own stuff as you read them. And so I did that a few times with my kids. I'd just be reading, excuse me, be reading and throwing something. But to me, part of what I love is like we're talking about the reality of life and it's not so cut and drawn and one of my favorite aspects is you read one story and Br'er Fox is burned to a crisp in a log because he was tricked by Br'er Rabbit. And you start the next story and Br'er Fox is rocking down the road. And the narrator goes, oh, you thought Br'er Fox was dead? No, that was that story. This is this story. And I loved that energy being witnessed and hopefully brought into their beings my, for my children of that's life. Like life isn't a dead end. It is a fluid thing that is beyond explanation. Well, you know, I still think it's problematic and we live in a culture where racism is inherent in our conditioning. And so I don't think this qualifies as, um, 
free from racism. In fact, I think there's a bunch of problematic stuff in it. How? How is there anything problematic? The way it depicts happy-go-lucky slaves. I don't think that Uncle Remus is a happy-go-lucky slave. I think he was a happy guy. I don't think he was a slave. Yeah, I mean, the book was praised by Theodore Roosevelt, Rudyard Kipling, Mark Twain. It's clearly something uh, important, right? But there's a lot in there that's, you know, like the tar baby itself is is a racist trope. So It isn't. That's what I mean. It's not. It's not. That's the... Th- the, the tar baby is a trap made out of tar that captures Br'er Rabbit. Well, in a way, Br'er Rabbit is, is sort of saying, like, we have to fight against this. No. This system of how, you know, legally food belongs to the master and all this stuff. Br'er Rabbit is a trickster. He's a yeah. shark. He's a... Yeah. And, you know, usually he comes out on the winning end, but now and then he gets his. And my understanding is these are stories that were brought over from Africa and continued life. And they're like fairy tales. They're tales that have lessons, life lessons, and there's a richness to them. That's why this gentleman brought them together. And he did this book that I showed you is a series of three books, I think, that he put out. So he put out the first one, then the second. And this is a collection of all three in one publication. Well, and in some ways, it's central to our understanding of the cultural traditions that slaves brought over from Africa, because there's tales in it that have the point of view that gives us a, a different view of who those people were. And it's one of the first literary, you know, ways to do that, that white people had access to. Well, this book, I think he put them out pretty recently. I think he collected this together in the 1900s, like 1980s or 90s, even maybe even early 2000. Like it's a recent collection that he published. So there's some things where he took African, West African folk tales and sort of adopted them, it says. Well, so again, yeah, like that just triggered a spark of memory that he grew up with these stories, and they were always very dear to him. So then in his later life, he thought, these are important. These should not just wash away. And so he collected them, and he went around to people to hear their versions. And and as he says in the book, like I just said, like, they are meant to be malleable and to be told in a manner that's personal to the narrator telling the story. Yeah. So in some aspects, the story we're, you know, are encouraged to identify with the rabbit and then the, the rabbit makes agreements and, and to share the common resources and then he breaks them and takes everything for himself and leaving people to go hungry. And, in others, it's the fox who's the smart one. And so you're right. There's this level of interpretiveness to it that that brings us around to, you know, how we tell the story matters as much as what's in the story. Right. But it's whenever we get into these discussions, it's like 
the conditioning and the context of a racial institutions and racist institutionalized culture, it's, you can't separate it. It's just so entrenched in our culture that it's, it's got absolutely has problematic elements in it about the depiction of black people and, you know, the way they speak and stuff like that. Well, so, um, just randomly open a page and read it for our readers for one second. Just plunk your finger down in the middle somewhere right. and just read a paragraph. One year, Br'er Tiger moved into the community. None of the animals wanted to have a thing to do with him. He was so weird looking with them black and orange stripes. Not only that, he was big, looked like he didn't have no friends and didn't want none. Everybody kept their distance. Everybody except Br'er Rabbit. Beautiful. Br'er Tiger. What a great concept. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this tale of the, uh, um, the, un, the people who are outsiders, right? And that's, that's a big part of that one paragraph you just read. And it's like, it's a gateway to how we don't have to pay attention to the rules of society. We can create relationships outside of those paradigms. Just because we see someone in some way doesn't mean that our fears are right about them. And I think that's definitely a redeeming quality to this. And it, it's something I'm inspired to return to now. But I don't know where we can steal a copy yet. Well, I could loan you this book, but it would be a loan for sure because it's near and dear to me. But I'd, I'd rather steal one, matey. I'm going to see you in a few hours. You want to? You want to borrow it? I don't want to borrow it, but you better keep an eye on it because it might go home with me anyway. Arr. Recording stopped.